the gist. Innovate, scale, succeed. Chinaju is the co-founder and chief growth officer of Max Africa, based in Lagos, Nigeria. Max, a pioneering mobility company focused on sub-Saharan Africa, is building mobility, financial services, and EV infrastructure for Africa's $100 billion transportation industry. He attended the Sloan School of Management at MIT, where he graduated with a master's degree in finance. He also possesses a bachelor's degree in both computer and electrical engineering. Chinadu has always had a passion to change the African experience and was a part of Forbes Africa 30 under 30 class of 2019. We could go on about his accolades for days. We're so happy to welcome him onto the gist. So, Chinedu, thank you so much for joining us today on The Gist. Uh, we're excited for our listeners to hear more about Metro Africa Express um, and the journey that you um, and Tayo have been on. Uh, so, just to get yeah. started, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Chinedu? All right, great. So, thank you for that then. My name is Chinedu. Uh, I'm co founder and chief growth officer at Max. So, Max originally stands for Metro Africa Express. Um, we've kind of gone from being called Metro Africa Express to just being called Max now. Um, and our website effectively now is also called um, Max Africa, not Max the NG anymore. So like, you know, trying to reflect what we do. So, you know, what is Max? Max, we're a financial services platform um, that supports um, commercial taxi drivers. So if you think about um, a two-wheel driver out of Nigeria, or a two-wheel border driver out of Kenya, for example, or a two, three or four-wheel driver out of Lagos, Nigeria. Um, in, in this market, drivers own less than 10% of the vehicles that are operational in those markets. Um, and the other 90% of drivers are dependent predominantly on um, people who are renting their vehicles to them. So there's no hope of ownership or wealth accumulation. Um, or oftentimes they end up going to borrow money to purchase vehicles from either like, you know, transport unions, or like you know loan sharks mm-hmm. things are the terms that those guys get the drivers typically get from like the unions and from loan sharks are you know really bad terms so the terms that you get are really bad terms typically um and what that does it puts the drivers in a perpetual um cycle of poverty mm-hmm. where they never really get to the point of proper ownership right mm-hmm. um beyond those guys the alternative is for drivers to go to banks um, and get a loan to purchase those vehicles. But like, unlike markets like the US and the UK, where you can walk into a bank and they have credit history and all sorts of different things that we used to make decisions, most of the markets we operate in Africa today, those things don't exist. So the drivers end up going to the banks and the banks ask for collateral worth 120% of the, of the vehicle they want to purchase. And you know, most times the, the question people have is, if I have that collateral, why would I come to you to get a loan in the first place? So what Max has done is, We've completely transformed that stuff where a driver now can walk into a max location at 8 a.m. in the morning and leave that same location at 5 p.m. the same day with a brand new vehicle intact um, with helmets um, and every other device they need to be able to work. And they can essentially start working from there. We give them a path to ownership for those vehicles. We also provide ride healing technology to help them augment the revenues that they already make. So that's not a primary thing for us, but we use that to help augment their revenue, right? 
beyond all that, so beyond just giving them access to high quality vehicles, where we provide a rent-to-own model for these drivers, mm-hmm. we also go above and beyond by providing things like health insurance for the drivers. We provide accident insurance. We provide passenger liability insurance, and we provide comprehensive vehicle insurance. We also help process paperwork for those vehicles so that the licenses and everything for the drivers and the vehicles are sorted. We also do everything around, um, you know, registration, taxation, management, and identity for the drivers. So that in the cities where we, where we operate and the drivers who work on our platform operate in the cities, that they essentially, the entire process around managing and relating with government is properly managed and abstracted so that the drivers are safe and able to work commercially, wherever, whenever, within what the law has defined. So, you know, in a, in a nutshell, really, Max is a financial services platform that provides support um, and ac- financial access for commercial taxi drivers um, to essentially long-term provide what we call um, financial well-being of a driver. So we're all about creating wealth for the driver, all about them helping create generational wealth and moving drivers from one um, socioeconomic status to the next and to the next and to the next until we get to the point where we have burgeoning middle class of drivers across Africa. Yay. Now we, we love generational wealth. We're all about the generational wealth here at the gist. Um I think I sort of I get your business model. Um I get who your end customers are. Um if I guess if you were sort of to sort of summarize it, how would you say um how do you generate revenue as max? So that's a great question. Um so we really make money by delivering services. So for every driver that we deploy, um, there's a subscription that we pay um, to continue to gain access to the vehicles and all the other services that we provide, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so comparing how we make money, for example, to how other companies make money. And Uber both makes money from charging commissions on every transaction that generates for the driver, right? Um, a bank, for example, makes money by making charging an interest on the value of the vehicle they issue to the driver. What we've done is we charge the driver what we call an, a platform access fee, right? That captures the cost of the rental for the, for the vehicle that the driver is using. It captures cost of security that we provide, cost of emergency response, cost of the welfare that we provide to them. So we have a social welfare team that essentially manage portfolios of drivers to ensure that the drivers are actively working their, their you know, financially and, and socially happy, and that issues are resolved for them, you know, in their personal lives or whatever the case may be, as far as it affects their ability to work, right? Yeah. Um, so we make money essentially by charging a platform access fee, and then we bundle a bunch of services alongside a financed vehicle for the drivers so that they can essentially work and any living for themselves. So, I mean, that's quite an interesting because that's, I mean, you're, you, what you've described, your model sounds different from Uber. I mean, do you think of these drivers, are they your employees or are they customers? How do you think about that? And then I think the second question is around uh, this model requires a lot of trust because you're essentially lending um whether that's you, well, maybe the first question, are they your employee or are they a customer? Because you're lending them money for a vehicle, but lending money is easy. How do you collect? How do you make sure that they don't just take the motorbike and then disappear? So that's a great question. Um, the driver is absolutely our customer and our primary, primary priority. So we track, you know, something internally called GWC for like good working condition for vehicles. Mm-hmm. And we also track something called the driver happiness score. Right. It's important to us that our customers are happy 
and that helps us keep our churn down. So, you know, for right healing in Africa, we're typically seeing churn uh, of about 40 to 60% monthly on these platforms. And our platform typically churns less than, is less than 5%. Most months is, is under 3%. Um, because, we, because we invest heavily in taking care of these drivers and ensuring that they're able to work on our personal property. So the drivers are our customer. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And so, and also what about, what about the trust element? How do you ensure that, um, I mean, you talked about a happiness, a happiness index, um, but how do you make sure that, you know, you're providing this bundled service um, how do you make sure that they're not going to run away with the bike once they've got it? How do you make sure that your integrated offering is meeting their needs, but also building that trust that they want to pay back? Um, that, yeah, how, how does that work? So that's a good question. And Max, we have something called the DVC infrastructure, which is the driver vehicle and capital framework. And we use this to assess opportunities for drivers and for all the decisions that we make on the platform. Whenever we deploy a driver who is fully financed, so we have what we call partial service and full service drivers. Partial service drivers are drivers who we don't give vehicles to, and full service drivers are drivers who we give vehicles to, right? When we deploy a full service vehicle, part of what the subscription covers includes things like assets tracking um, and emergency response. When a driver takes a vehicle from our platform, if they're in default, we have teams who are responsible for recovering those vehicles, and that's priced into the subscription that they pay on a daily basis. We have teams that are responsible for going out there, recovering those vehicles. And to recover the vehicles, we have the capacity to remotely shut down those vehicles and go pick them up from wherever because we automatically track all the vehicles. We have, you know, we use IoT to track the vehicles and to shut them down and turn them on remotely and do all sorts of things on those systems. So that helps us, you know, ensure that we don't, that we, that we minimize loss where that is, I guess, a probability, right? That's one. Um, two, we use alternative data to create what we call a driver's a driver credit score. So when a driver applies to join Max, we have we put them in a pipeline called the prospect um, platform for tracking prospect on our system. And as they go to that, that platform, we have a score. We, we've essentially codified that process where we're able to create a score um, for the driver at different stages to our pipeline. Um, and that score is essentially supposed to speak to how risky or how, or how much less risky a driver is. Um, and it helps driver decision making where, you know, coming to the platform, we already have de-risked heavily um, to find the drivers who have lowest um, risk to our platform. And then we bring those guys and then we kind of move on from there. So one, we have the, we have like, you know, a very robust, detailed operational process around screening, tracking, background checks, all that stuff. We use technology to codify and automate our process as well so that we're able to like come up with something called like a driver credit score and, and track that through the entire process. And then we have, you know, teams called field operations teams and recovery teams who are responsible for, you know, making sure we can track all our vehicles and where there's a default, you know, we're able to shut down those vehicles and go recover them. So we have, you know, we, we have the proactive and reactive responses built in and we leverage technology to make it much more robust. Okay. okay. Super interesting. Yeah. I feel like I'm learning quite a lot actually on this call, hey? Um, yeah. It's amazing. I'm actually going to take a bit of a step back because um, I think what I like, what I sort of like like about your story a little bit is the fact that like you guys are business school friends um, that moved back to the continent, much like Tatenda and I. <laughs> um, you guys both started at MIT. What sort of informed your decision to come back and build something on the continent instead of staying in the US and, and following what most would consider 
probably a bit of an easier corporate sort of um, path. So essentially, if I understand the question properly, the, why did we move back to Nigeria? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, so, but it's, it's 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 worth asking, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love that, right? Now, so here's the thing. My thinking is, and you know, I also speak to I think what some of the experiences I'm thinking around this is. My thinking is, you know, no one is going to build a country and a continent for us. We will have to do it ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if not, if not us, then 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 who? You know, yeah, true. so the idea, the idea was, you know, make that decision, move back first and continue to convince other folks and build something that is convincing enough for other people to want to come back and join. Right. Um, I mean, so, so, you know, I'm very passionate about, you know, what, um, what we're doing and what we can achieve and how that potentially changes the face of the continent. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited about that opportunity. And if you think about all the people who are working in like, other places like Wanika Fund and just doing all these high impact amazing opportunities in Africa. Those are the things that build up the infrastructure for other businesses to build and suddenly become more attractive to you know other companies to join, other other individuals who want to move back to Africa to join. Going to MIT, because I left my job at Barclays to go to MIT, at Barclays Capital. Going to MIT was my bridge to go to move back to Africa. That was the plan. It was not, I was not entertaining any opportunities outside moving back to Nigeria or Ghana, or somewhere in Africa. So I remember I looked at working at One Acre Fund, I looked at doing some startup in agriculture, I looked at doing some startup in, in e-commerce with mother and children, uh, focused on like infant and maternal mortality. Um, and when I couldn't figure out the logistics, that's how I got into, I, I, met, I got connected to Tile, um, you know, got involved in the class project they were working at the time that effectively became Max. And you know, we're here today, right? Cool. Um, for Tile, Tile had worked in oil and gas and had seen, I just felt like, you know, time was, it was time for something different to happen. Mm-hmm. Felt like, yeah, he, he described it as he felt like um, he, folks in the oil and gas sector live like in a different world from the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. I'm using Nigeria as an example, um, in terms of what they're living, like their daily living was and all that stuff. And he felt like the, you know, the common man needed more. So he wanted to also, you know, go out to the States, you know, get some education at MIT and come back and build something that would have a transformative impact on people's lives as well, where he could he could build businesses that could help become more of an equalizer. Not, not equalizer as in take from the rich and the poor, no, but like an uplifter, exactly. Like mm-hmm. help people who are not doing as well to have better quality access to services and all sorts of things. So, you know, his motivation, my motivation were all very similar and it was easy for us to like, you know, take up and, and move forward with it. So what was what was that light bulb moment where you were like, this is this is the plan, this is what we're doing actually? Mm. Um, so December of 2014, uh, we had like a holiday and I moved back to Nigeria and I was here for about six to eight weeks. And for me, I mean then Max was providing logistics for e-commerce, right? Yeah. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me why people um why people needed what do you call it? Why people needed um why e-commerce was growing. I couldn't figure out a life on me. So I said I was going to go everywhere in public transportation and just see what the life of a daily negotiation was like. Mm-hmm. I have to be honest with you, it was hell. Rushing to get into buses every morning, all that hustle. I'm six foot six. So I'm, I'm not just hustling. <laughs> all of the listeners, please know, please know, she is six foot six. Yeah, you know, it, 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 so, so 
because I'm that tall, it also means that I can't sit anywhere in the bus but the front. So yeah. if I miss the front seat in the bus, I kind of have to wait for that bus to get filled and for the next bus to show up. Mm-hmm. So that meant standing, you know, on the side of the road in lines, you know, when the bus comes, you know, I had to go from being the bougie MIT kid to <laughs> young man in the streets of Lagos where, you know, instead of wearing my, my suits, um, instead of like, you know, wearing my suit and walking like I was in a suit, I would end up like, you know, buttoning the jacket so that I could run well and like push, push off get into the front of the, of the bus. I think after you know for about four weeks, I was like, yeah, this is definitely not the life I'm interested in living. <laughs> and I can fully understand why people would much rather order stuff to get delivered to them in Nigeria than do anything else, right? Yeah. Um, and so for me, that was, I mean, call it a silly explanation, but that, that is silly justification. But for me, that in itself was justification for, all right, we need to do, do this, right? Um, so... I think went back to school in January, in February. I was like, yo, I'm going to do this full time. You know, this is definitely it for me. And Tyre felt the same way. I kind of moved from there. I mean, it was, it was actually more than Tyre and I. There were about five to seven of us initially. Um, and we were all excited. But I think over time, it was only Tyre and I who ended up making the full transition uh, back to Nigeria to build Max. I guess, I guess, I mean, it's interesting <laughs> you, you're talking about, um, you know, why would people have stuff ordered to them? But I guess what you always hear um, about life in, in Lagos particularly is that, you know, traffic is, an, is, is a nightmare. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're getting stuff delivered to you, but it's going to take a couple of hours um, to come, you know, four hours plus, which I guess is part of the challenge that you guys were trying to solve is how do we, you know, deliver if we're looking at, e-commerce delivery how do we do it quicker and reliably what's one thing if you in your mind what's one thing about doing business in nigeria that people misunderstand doing business in nigeria isn't as different as it is doing business anywhere else in the world it's all my thinking is right so you know the market is very tough people are very tough but if you think about it if you're offering a service in the u.s you have an incredible focus on customer service and customer experience, right? Mm-hmm. People say that the Nigerian government is super corrupt and all that stuff. And, you know, that's not a lie. But are you willing and able to show me, a co- like, any other economies where, you know, governments are not similarly in that way, whether it's through um, organized corruption or disorganized corruption? For example, in the U.S., there's the lobby system, where as a company... Like a lobby government officials and you know officially pay them money um, to get things done and you know in other parts across Africa that's that's generally just generally a challenge that people mm-hmm. have right obviously this is something that we don't participate in and it is an, it's naturally blocker to business and stuff like that but mm-hmm. when you actually think about how business works across the world we'll do this every like this is something that's a standard in every other country. So correction, we're six years into this. We started. Six years. Yeah, it's going to be what? Six years. Okay. Started, started as a class project in. <laughs> but does it count? Does that, does that count? You know, does it count? We all had class projects in business school. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Very few of us could actually make it work, though. So could I see? So fair. So if you add the class project time, it's actually seven years, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> But we, we, went, we um, went live, I think, August 3rd, 2015. So that's actually six days. Wow. Six an years and three days. Wow. 
And and that wasn't celebrated. I need to go fight someone because. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like you should fight Tyle. If anyone like it's not us, <laughs> we're not the problem here. Yeah. But yeah, so um, it's interesting. So when we first started out, we were we were providing e-commerce for we we're providing logistics for e-commerce companies. We're trying to figure out how to. We're fi- we essentially have come up with a way to provide delivery anywhere in Lagos in under ninety minutes. I said another three hours. Um, well, companies were taking five to seven days to do the same deliveries, right? Mm-hmm. We're a bit, a bit more pricey than they were. I think just not too significantly more, but we're a bit more pricey than they were. In some cases, we're the same price. But we're often delivered the same day. And not just the same day. We're say, advertising three hours and doing deliveries in under 90 minutes consistently, right? Okay. Um, this was 2015 when we first rolled out. By 2016, February, we had started doing logistics for restaurants as well. So not just e-commerce companies, but for restaurants as well. And by July, we rolled out something called Max Eats, where we became like a food ordering, food delivery platform. Um, we killed that at the December of 2016. And then 2017, July, end of June, beginning of July, we rolled out Max Go, which effectively would become Max Okada. And that's you know, completely transformed the way our business operated, our business experience, all that stuff. Um, and then I think, you know, we went through all that transition and got to, you know, 2019 when we actually started doing financing of vehicles on our platform. Um, and then now that is, so now we now have a combined offering that includes the financing, the writing, um, the other services that we provide to the drivers and everything. And effectively have gone from providing services to a customer who's ordering for packages and stuff like that to really making the driver our customer, right? So as a business, we've completely changed, like where we are today and where we were when we first started six years ago, and not even related as they were. Today, we're, we're focused on providing you know, financial services to commercial taxi drivers. But when we first started out, we're focused on providing you know, fast, reliable logistics to e-commerce businesses. You know, The customers are different, the, the, the markets are different, everything is different. Mm-hmm. We really have to completely change the way our technology is delivered to make sure that we're able to support, you know? And so when did you get into manufacturing? Like you talk a, a lot about, um, you know, sustainable mobility. Um, and we saw that you you'd recently launched an assembly plant. Um, why, why manufacturing and why is sustainable uh, mobility important to Max? So that's a great question. So what, we, what we've done is, when you think about what we're trying to do, you know, the, the core goal for us is to build a sustainable business, right? That has a transformative impact on the quality of life of people. Quality of life of people doesn't stop at economics, making more money for them. It actually, it actually goes all the way to how do we improve their life, mm-hmm. right? We're looking at minimizing airborne diseases like asthma, bronchitis, all that stuff, right? Even also reducing the cost of operation. So if you think about how much how much they have to pay today to buy gas versus how much they would have to pay if they were recharging electric motorcycles, the electric motorcycles win the day. If you think about how much money they have to spend today maintaining vehicles, buying the clutch fiber, doing all these different things, versus the total cost of you know purchasing an electric vehicle, um, the electric vehicle is cheaper in that sense. So, oh no no! Only only an electric motorbike. An electric vehicle is expensive. 
Okay, so more specifically, the electric motorcycle is cheaper, right? Yes. The reality exactly. is that whatever we go into as far as electric mobility is concerned, the goal will always, always to be how do we make this super sustainable, super efficient? Because mm-hmm. I'm not building, we're not building this for a luxury driver who wants to spend, you know, $20,000 on a motorcycle and ride it maybe once or twice a month, you know, to go on like a cruise with a bunch of friends and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We're building this for people who can only afford to pay so much money and depend on this as a daily living. So it has to be more rugged and less luxury and more efficient and focused on work, right? Um, and that's what really we're looking for. Why did we go into this stuff? Because, you know, part of changing people's lives, part of giving them a better quality of life, you know, building a better future for ourselves and for our children and for our children's children is by building businesses that, are, that can outlast us. Um, so why did we go into EVs? It's because we want to build a more sustainable um, reality for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we could have done this in so many different ways. There are a lot of other folks who have built bikes or electric bikes and, you know, have come out with it. And when you look at the prices, there's... You know, the bikes priced eight thousand dollars, six thousand. I think the cheapest we saw outside Max was like between like between six and four and eight thousand dollars. I'm not sure anymore. And then outside the eight thousand dollar bikes, you're looking at ten, twelve, twenty thousand dollar bikes. Our bikes are priced at a much much cheaper price, right? We're also, you know, we co-developed those bikes, right? So we were involved in the design. We we played a key role in the design process. We did a lot of testing and automation on the ground. Um, testing a lot of stuff in Nigeria. You know, we've gone through three different, one, our third model now of electric bikes. The first model was us converting, um, um, converting, um, what do you call it? Um, gas engine bikes into electric bikes. And we've kind of gone down that mission to where we are today. Um, you know, so where are we headed with this stuff? You know, we want to be able to transform, you know, fleets across Africa to go from, you know, pure gas engine power to uh, more sustainable, um, means of powering those fleets, right? So that one, we can, you know, have much better experience for ourselves and for our children and just live a safer world because we are concerned about, you know, emissions and gases and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, two, it generally is cheaper for drivers to be able to operate that way. So if a driver revenue stays the same, for example, right? And their costs go down, we're still helping them deliver better financial well-being. Um, because we're helping them, you know, take more money home by by reducing their cost and helping them eke out more from their money. That's really what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, get that. And 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 then I guess in terms of the infrastructure, right? So part of the challenge with EVs is you need the charging stations. Um, so I mean, was that available in Nigeria, or have you had to think about partners um, along that value chain? Because it doesn't help you guys create the the motorbikes, but then your drivers don't have anywhere to charge. Um, how did you think about that? So that's a fantastic question. So what we've done, we've actually built bikes that, that require battery swapping so that the driver doesn't have to spend three hours to six hours at the, at the charging station charging the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, the drivers are also able to connect those same bikes to charge at home overnight if they wanted to, right? But we know what the power situation in countries like Nigeria can be. Um, so that's that's the thing that we've done, made them swappable batteries. We've also been working with um, you know companies like Shell Foundation in, um, out of the UK that do some work together with us in Nigeria, um, Total, um, and um, a few other organizations um, to help us, one, to essentially co-build, co-deliver 
and essentially figure out the right partnerships that allow us uh, allow um, charging stations get delivered to solve what we're trying to solve for today. Right? Um, are we going to be building charging stations ourselves? Um, I would absolutely say no to that. Right? Um, it's just it's just a lot of things to be doing all at once. Yeah. What we've done is we've you know we brought in you know investors like Shell Foundation who supported us. Um, to this kind of to this project in particular, we brought in. Um, we're, we're pursuing. We're working through partnerships with folks like Total and a few others who um, already have you know distribution of filling stations and charging and stations and have the capacity to build out charging stations. We're also working with a couple um, key power producers and distributors in Nigeria to test out um, um, them also running up charging stations in partnership with us, right? Um, so partnerships are the way for us to go. We've clearly seen that. Um, and, you know, we're excited about, you know, folks who are looking to do those kinds of work with us um, across Africa. We're excited. You know, if they, they, if they listen to the podcast, I want to get in touch. <laughs> well, we'll give, you, we'll give you your detail. We'll give people your details and let them know how to get, yeah, how to get in touch. Um, I feel like I, I'm always one who's kind of bring it back to like a personal touch of like, who, what's actually happening. Um, I feel as if very often people sort of see the accolades and they think, you know, it's been smooth sailing. Everything has sort of gone your way. You know, you're the chosen one. Um, perhaps maybe tell our listeners a little bit, were there any doubt that, doubts that ever came up? Um, if, they, if there were any doubts about anything about the business, um, how did you overcome these um, strategically yourself? Uh, what tell you as business partners has there been like places where you guys have faltered and just been like, okay, actually, we need to, we need to persevere through this? Of course, I mean, it's, there's been lots of challenges. I mean, if you look at the electric vehicles, for example, it's taken us about two to three years to get to where we are, right? But most people would see that today and say, oh my God, you guys, they did EVs overnight. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. That's, that's a lot of grind that has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tyler has driven that for us specifically. Um, we have had challenges. Um, when you, part of, you know, around things like bringing in talent, um, finding the right place for talent, when you see Kuchan, how do you manage that, all that stuff. There's been a lot of things that we've had to do to change personally how we engage and work with people, right? So in situations where, you know, I mean, we have different personalities, right? And a bit of, you know, a more um, big picture right brain. Um, Tyre is more left brain. It's like, no, no, no. Like, I like all the ideology, but like, we need to do ABC. Like, I need to see a very clear plan. Right? <laughs> in that sense, or we think about the world very differently in that sense. Um, but what that has helped for us, helped us with, with the business is, it's allowed us to also, you know, be balancing factors when one person is to one side, other person to the other side. We're able to balance a bit more and meet ourselves in the middle. And that helps us build a more stable, organized business. Um, but yes, there have been challenges, lots of challenges. I mean, the challenges in marriages, so why would there be challenges in like business, right? Good um, <laughs> way of looking at it. Because we need to figure out how to resolve those and you know continue to grow the business. No, that's so that's so that's such a really good insight. <laughs> There's challenges in marriages, and so even in a in a business and in a partnership, there would be right. So you that builds doubt, and you but you always have to come back to kind of what are we what are we trying to build? Where are we trying to go? Um, I guess just another area that we know with a lot of entrepreneurs we've been talking to is the issue of capital. Um, you know, it's it's difficult to raise capital on the continent, whether you're talking to 
local founders or, or sorry, local investors or international investors and kind of selling your story. But when you're trying to build in a space where people have never seen what you're trying to do, um, can you tell us kind of about your capital raising journey? I mean, we know you've raised a lot of money over the last couple of years, but maybe like, I don't know, two or three things that you've learned in the fundraising process that you think would be helpful for other entrepreneurs or our listeners to, to, to hear from and, and probably learn from your experience. So we've been very, very, very fortunate with the kind of investors that we have um, and networks that we've been connected to. So I know when we first started out, um, we had um, Techstars. So we'd applied to the accelerator program with Techstars and we were accepted. And Techstars essentially, you know, when you see standing on the back of on the shoulder of giants, mm. we stood on the shoulder of giants when we went to Techstars. Techstars was the giant that took us into every room, introduced us, and held us, did everything, and really helped us get to that next level, right? Um, so Techstars was super incredible for us, especially at the seed round. Um, and then post seed, we had companies like Shell Foundation come in and really support us and you know provide a lot of value. And you know, when you have folks like this coming. As you sell your story, they are also selling your story within your networks. So a lot of times people are not necessarily hearing of you for the first time. They can also help with introductions, advice, all that stuff. Um, from Techstars and then from Shell Foundation, we went on to you know, do our Series A. And we you know, got, we were introduced to funds like Novasta, who came on board to be around, um, Alicia and Goodwill, um, who, who Alicia represent Goodwill in Nigeria out of um, Europe, um, um, Netherlands specifically. Uh, we had a company called um, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, who are fund, you know, backed by, like, owned by Bill Gates, um, and backed by, you know, Bill Gates, you know, Kosla, you know, some of the richest people in the world, and they're, you know, looking at how do they, how do they invest in um, um, businesses that are driving for sustainability across the world, right? So, you know, Bill Gates one came in and also gave us some money. Um, and we've just been fortunate really to have people within our networks who have been willing to, you know, do the right introductions for us, speak up on our behalf. Um, and I don't know that this, we've been, we've done things particularly that have made us um, so lucky. I mean, we've kind of done, I guess, the basic things, make sure we have the right decks in place, our decks, mm. be able to communicate our story, you know, have clear, succinct, straightforward stories. But it's been a learning process throughout. And, you know, we, we continue from that point now, we still have all these funds like Novasta and Co. who have, you know, gone out there and also told our stories to other people, right? Mm-hmm. So it, what has been, what we found has worked for us is, you know, we had a really great, I guess, startup, right? That helped introduce us to a bunch of people. And, you know, what good investors are good at, like good investors who come about your business uh, should uh, typically are good at, you know, telling your story to other people, right? Because in telling your story to other people, they also help create some of the demand that helps drive you know, make fundraising faster or better, um, help improve value of the business, all sorts of different things. So it's just, you know, it's great. We've been very lucky. No, I mean, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but also it's actually, honestly, it's, I guess, being in the right rooms just makes mm, quite a huge difference, right? Um, and being prepared to be in the right rooms and sort of um, accept these opportunities as they come along. Um I guess, okay, maybe, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what are some of the key lessons you guys have learned since you started? Um, you need to have short-term memory. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Don't be traumatized. Move on quickly. You have to choose your trauma. <laughs> fair, fair. So, the thing is, if you, if you, if you, you know, if you don't have that short-term memory and get stuck on things, you might be stuck on those things for a little too long before you are as a destructive to the business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, learning to trying to practicing, you know, keeping, you know, maintaining short-term memory um, is something that we're finding you know, really helpful, um, especially so that you don't still, you don't, you're not. You're not focused on what is potentially traumatic for you to your life, right? So that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, two, there's a, a sparring more, right? So, you know, knowing what I know today versus what I knew when we started the business, you know, obviously there are a lot of decisions that, were, that, we've, that we made then that we'll probably make differently. But, you know, you know, it's, it is what it is. You live and you learn, right? Um, I think a third thing for me is, interestingly enough, so when you first started business, or this first-time entrepreneurs, Speaking from experience, mm. when you first start, those first two to three years, you're obsessed with products. Products, you want to have the best product, the best, the best, the best, the best, the best. You know, when you first start a company, the first two to three years, you know, you're product obsessed. The idea is to have the best, the best, the best. Uh, what we realize very quickly is once you're getting to that point where you're having to, like, you know, focus on really justifying your business, drive, justifying the growth you're you're trying to deliver all these kind of different things. You realize very, very quickly that you should have been focused on distribution the whole time, not product. Um, and some people don't respond, don't adjust quickly enough to that. Mm. And that can be destructive or detrimental to them. Um, second time entrepreneurs tend to be a lot more successful than you know, first time entrepreneurs. I mean historically, I don't know, I don't know how true that is, but that's the perception people have. Um, and that's Predominantly driven by the fact that second time or multi entrepreneurs, senior entrepreneurs understand that you want to get to distribution very quickly mm-hmm. and optimize for distribution and not necessarily for product, right? So it's not to say throw your product, but it's to make sure you're paying attention to that distribution and being, you know, accurately aware of you know where you sit in that. You know, the two things for me. That's really good advice. Yeah, that's actually, yeah. I think, I mean, we've we've heard that a couple of times from some of the other entrepreneurs we've spoken to to say um, you can start being product obsessed, but at the end of the day, you know, you're right. Distribution, but also your customer is- Consumer. Your consumer is yeah. so, so important um, because you can, you can pivot around um, what they actually need versus this great idea that you think you're having, but they're like, yeah, that's great, but that's not what we need. Yeah, exactly. So what's next for for you as an individual, for you and Tayo and Max? Where what what does the next three to five years look like? What does what does Max look like in five years' time? Also, not even five years. Well, like are you taking over the world? <laughs> are we voting for you at some point? Yeah, what, what is happening? Are you gonna be president? We're actually taking over the world. We're um, <laughs> doing our first country outside Nigeria. Um mm-hmm. short. Uh, we expect to flow that with, with more expansions rapidly. So we're very excited about that. What's um, the country? Um, you will hear it when you hear it. <laughs> wow. You will know when you know. Like, okay. okay. <laughs> uh, but we've actually had uh, a launch team in our first non-Nigeria country, which okay. is quite exciting. Uh, we have a couple of things in the pipeline as a result. Um, where we've, we've gone from being a two-wheel predominant company to two, three, and four wheels now, where with four wheels, we have cars and minibuses as well. 
So that's exciting. Oh, wow. um, so the goal is just to scale up the business from where we are to where we need to go. And that's that's world domination, right? I mean, obviously I say that with, with like a bit of a smirk on my face, but like the point is, you know, we're taking this to the next level and the idea is to build, is to really, so we've come up with this motto within the business and it says no driver left behind. And that's genuinely what we're headed towards. We don't want to leave any drivers behind anymore. We want to make sure that we can deliver our services to as many drivers across across the across the continent as possible. And that's what we're shooting for over the next three to five years. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, we're excited. We're excited to see it and follow your journey and maybe have you on one of our future seasons to see how you guys are doing. That would be amazing. Amazing. All right. <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much for for your time today we really really enjoyed just chatting to you and picking your brain and just yeah hearing about um the amazing work that amazing work with business that you guys are building thank you for having me very grateful to have been on, on this with you guys it's amazing GIST is creating new African narratives through disseminating key lessons and best practices from some of the continent's leading entrepreneurs and businesses.